0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, Most Americans have been led to believe that the only purpose of political parties is to win elections, but a black party in Maryland believes its main mission is to organize the people. And black people that immigrate to the United States from elsewhere in the diaspora inherit the historical legacies of black Americans, but also bring their own perspectives on liberation. We'll hear from a multicultural scholar born in Nigeria. But first, politically active black teachers have created a 21st century version of Freedom School to prepare a new generation for struggle. Pate Lindsey is a California teacher and a founder of the Ida B. Wells Education Project.
0: We are a black-led multicultural collective of classroom educators who are dedicated to centering and upholding and building movements for Black liberation, but also liberation of, of all oppressed people from our classrooms and communities. So the idea is that, you know, teachers are frequently told that, you know, you have to be neutral in education, you have to be unbiased, but we know that there's nothing neutral or unbiased about education in racist America, and we're refusing to be neutral. You know, we're teaching for justice. We're teaching for liberation. You know, we're teaching for inspiration for people who are going to organize and change the world.
2: Yes, I get the impression that this is largely an outgrowth of what's called the Black Lives Matter movement.
0: I think in many ways we started over the summer in June of 2020, and absolutely it was in the midst of this worldwide uprising uh, for Black liberation, this worldwide uprising against racism. And a lot of teachers were asking, you know, what can I do? How can I be a part of this movement? In addition, you know, we were dealing with this COVID crisis in our schools that really it really isolated a lot of teachers. It really removed a lot of teachers from the community support and structures that we're used to having. Um, And so a lot of our organizers looked at this kind of dual crisis in the teacher community where teachers were saying, you know, what do I do? I want to join the struggle against liberation. I want to build this in my classroom. How do I do it? And also teachers just really needing to talk to each other and build together. So absolutely, we formed in June of 2020. We had started with a working group of 25 educators from around the country. These are people who have been Leaders in their communities, people who have done union struggles, people who have led the fight for ethnic studies in their district, and people who have a lot of experience teaching about movements for liberation or teaching about oppression in ways that empower young people. And so, you know, a lot of teachers are talking about, what do we do? What do we do? Some of us know what to do, right? Some of us have been doing this for a long time. We've been organizing, we've been building from our classrooms. And so we decided to step up and say, hey, you know, join this organization. Here's what we're going to do. So over the summer, we started with the idea of centering black liberation movements in our curriculum. So we started a summer humanities institute for teachers. And part of this is to, you know, kind of provide some definition to that big field of anti-racist education that I think is kind of poorly defined. So we started talking about what is anti-racist education. You know, we talked about what is it that actually wins the struggle against racism? What actually wins is movements. It's organizing, right? And so we started looking at ways to center those movements in our classrooms. So we started off with a summer institute for teachers, where we're teaching them about three major moments of the Black liberation struggle. Uh, our first unit was on Haiti, the Haitian Revolution, and, and resistance in the Caribbean. Our second unit was on Harlem in the 1920s and 30s, you know, the Harlem Renaissance and uh, the New Negro Movement, all of that. And our third unit was on the Black Power Movement, and we centered that one on the writings of Asada Shakur. This sounds very much
2: <laughs> like a new kind of freedom school of which there have been many versions over the years. (laughs)
0: That is exactly what I said in the pitch when I was recruiting people. I said, I would like to do a freedom school. Exactly. But for educators specifically, I think that, you know, a lot of educators right now, they want to teach black history. But according to a study by the National Museum of African-American History, black history is only about 8 to 9% of content in U.S. history classes across the country. And so I think that a lot of teachers, they really want to teach it, but they don't know how. They just don't have that information. And so we're, we're here to provide, you know, the background, we're here to provide the resources, and we're here to you know, help teachers develop lessons and resources that will center these movements in their classrooms.
2: You say that your lessons are student-driven and inquiry-based. What's that mean?
0: Yes. So we definitely believe a lot in what's known as culturally responsive learning and student-driven learning and an in inquiry-based learning, and these are really important tenets for teaching It's getting away from that kind of didactic lecture structure or, you know, as Paulo Freire says, the banking model, the idea that, you know, your students know nothing, you know, everything, you come in and you lecture them about everything. (laughs) It's more about creating a dynamic environment in your classroom and building from where your students are at and building in a way that empowers them. So usually what inquiry-based learning means is that you start with a question and you use your unit, uh, that question to structure your investigation of the topic. So for example, when I do my unit on slavery, I currently teach U.S. History, AP U.S. History, and African American Studies in high school in Los Angeles. And so when I do my first unit on slavery... Our inquiry question is, how did Africans resist and preserve their humanity in the institution of slavery, right? And so our through line for that unit is African resistance, and that's what we're investigating. That's what we're studying. Um, And students are going to answer that question. By the end of the unit, they can tell me how how Africans resisted, how they retained their humanity (laughs) throughout the slave experience. So the idea is just that learning is an investigation. A lot of this really comes from the ideas of Paulo Freire. The idea that learning is really about exploration. It's about communication. It's about community. And it's not so much just somebody sitting there and receiving. It's about what the students can do.
2: You included in the packet of information you gave to us an example of a lesson plan. And this one uses some very recent material. It's put together by Charlotte Johnson. And it's based on that poem read by a young Black woman at the Biden inauguration the hill we climb. And I was very interested in the lesson plan. It says it discovers connections between Ms. Gorman's poem and other pieces of American political rhetoric, including pieces by Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Michelle Obama, but also one of my favorite people, Richard Pryor. So please tell me how Richard Pryor can be useful in the classroom.
0: I apologize. You would really have to talk to Charlotte Johnson to talk through that lesson in particular. I am overseeing the project as a whole. I can't speak specifically that lesson, but I can tell you that when I met Charlotte Johnson, she's an incredible educator, by the way, and somebody with a really strong sense of both like the Black history and literature tradition, and also a really strong sense of how to operate in the classroom, like classroom dynamics and building with students. But when I first met her, she was presenting a lesson at a conference, and it was a lesson that involved you know the Black tradition of like storytelling, and then it goes into talking about Rudy Ray Moore, <laughs> and I had never seen anybody talk about Rudy Ray Moore in a classroom context before, and I was impressed. And so I'm not surprised that Richard Pryor ended up in this as well. Um, Charlotte is definitely somebody who will, reach, uh, will find a wide variety of sources that you would not normally see in a classroom lesson and make sure that people are engaging with that in an authentic way.
2: You cited a study that showed only 8 to 9% of classroom time is dedicated to Black history. In my experience it's much less than that and closer to zero but aren't there pressures especially in the new century to pare the curriculum down just to what people need to get a job
0: absolutely there's a big emphasis on stem and on tech and on standardized testing too which also relates to this kind of like capitalist corporate infrastructure within the classroom system Um, I would say there's a lot of pressure from the powers that be to kind of take the humanity out of learning, to take the exploration out of learning and to take that like political empowerment out. And, you know, we are very consciously trying to bring it back in. And so I would say, yes, there is a lot of pressure. Again, I feel, I always feel like I've been a history teacher for many years. I always feel like history is the bastard stepchild in a lot of public schools. Like we do not get the funding that other departments get. And I do think that it's intentional. You know, I think that the people in power do not necessarily benefit from young people knowing their history, especially young people in these urban schools. You know, the vast majority of students in public schools are people of color.
2: Well, this is a very unabashedly political project that we're talking about And there's a larger world of politics out there. What kind of support or pushback has the project received from parents?
0: a lot of support from parents, but it's obviously about who you're talking to. You know, black parents are very eager to see classroom materials that center and celebrate black resistance and black life. Because um, we know that, you know, you mentioned that black history is rarely taught in schools. I would say that even to the extent that it's ta- taught, it's often very disempowering. You know, they'll point to one great leader and say, he did great things, don't ask any more questions, you know. And a lot of teachers will just harp and go in and on and on and on about the centuries of oppression, but they're not really telling you what people did, they're not telling you about the empowering part, the organizing part, the resisting part, because, you know, that stuff can get a little bit radical, that stuff can get scary to the people who are designing some of these curriculum and classes. So just to say that, you know, I've had, we've actually had really positive responses, but at this point, what we're mostly hearing from are parents who are very, very, very supportive.
2: The project formed what's called a Summer Humanities Institute, and one of the subjects or personalities that it focuses on is Asada Shakur. The Mm -hmm. course is titled Asada Taught Me, Black Power and the Criminal Justice System. Well, tell me, in the state of New Jersey, where the state has a bounty on Asada Shakur's head, how is this course playing?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we, we talked to teachers about incorporating it. And, in, you know, all teachers who teach U.S. history do units on the 1960s and 1970s. So we were trying to talk to them about incorporating it in their units there or in if they're doing any kind of black autobiographical reading or writing. So I thought, thought of Shakur's work in my classes. So because I teach about organizing, and I, I teach about organizing, um, you know, all throughout the course of the US history class, a lot of times I end up with students who organize. So I can tell you there's this one year in particular where students from my AP class led a series of walkouts. Um, and this is what in response to Trump getting elected. And you know, my students at that time were majority, Latino and were majority like either immigrants themselves or the children of immigrants. So when Trump got elected, you know, this is a very much a clear threat to their existence, to their family, to their community. And the first thing they did was organize. And I was so proud of them at that time. But there was a lot of pushback and they got in a lot of trouble. There were repercussions all throughout the school. And so one of the things that I was able to do for them, I started structuring lessons just to speak to them and speak to where they're at and their political development. And so one of the things that we read together, one of the texts we read together we, was excerpts from Asada Shakur's autobiography. And it's just an incredible piece of writing about a young woman of color exploring the movement and kind of learning her place and looking at all these different elements um, and developing you know, within the movement and, and you know, her kind of learning all these different elements like political character of the U.S. and all these different forces in the movement. And for my students who were in motion, everything they were reading really, like, really hit, really resonated with them. And it ended up being a really powerful learning experience. I still kept some of the art they did from that learning experience with, like, the words of Asada Shakur, representations of what it meant to them. So it was powerful. I mean, again, you know, we will probably see pushback in the future. We are just starting out. I absolutely could see parents in New Jersey, but, you know, I'm ready for that fight. I will fight for the right to be able to talk about Asada Shakur. Again, it's a powerful learning tool, especially for young people of color who are growing up in the cities and experiencing a lot of the things that she experienced.
2: Uh, The Ida B. Wells Project teaches about the movement, but it's clearly part of the movement. So as a movement person, where do you see this project going, branching out and uh, reproducing itself?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Our goal is to absolutely have um, Ida B. Wells Clubs in schools and high schools across the United States. You know, like I said, we are doing our summer institutes, and right now we're doing monthly meetings with educators. This weekend, we're having a meeting with educators about empowering resistance to white supremacist violence. These are elements of the movement that a lot of teachers just don't know about. They just didn't learn it in school. So we're going to look at, you know, the issue of organizing against white supremacist violence from reconstruction through the present day. So we're going to do those monthly meetings. Uh, next month, we're going to do our theme is mutual aid and eviction resistance. And I'm already talking to organizers about how to partner and bring them into our sessions. And we would like to do a nationwide mutual aid project with students and try to see how many like schools we can get involved in that. Going further from that, part of what we're trying to do, again, is bring together the classroom and the movement. Um, And this is something I've done for a long time. For example, the people that I'm reaching out to, some of the folks that I'm reaching out to about the mutual aid project are organizers with the LA Tenants Union who have come and talked to my classes and done workshops with my classes in the past. So we're always looking for new organizations to partner with and, you know, for ways for us to support those organizations from our classroom and those movements from our classroom. But we are looking to do more of that sort of thing in the future. Some other stuff we would like to do, you know, and this is all a little bit far off. We are new. We're just getting started. But we are very interested in doing freedom schools for young people as well. Um, And we would like to set up a program for young people where we can get, you know, young people who volunteer, who want to work with us to come into these schools and learn black history, learn organizing with us. So our most popular lesson series so far is the Lovecraft Country lesson series, um, where, you know, a lot of people around the country were watching the show Lovecraft Country earlier in in the fall And we're talking about, you know, the Lovecraft Country show references a lot of things in black history. It references a lot of oppression. It references a lot of dark history as well. But we saw that a lot of people were watching the show and going, you know, I never knew about that thing. I never learned about that thing. Why didn't I learn that in school? And we were like, you know, I already teach about this stuff. Let's make these lessons. And so we have a very popular lesson series that I recommend that folks check out, you know, where we took – things that were represented in Lovecraft Country and expanded them into lessons for classroom educators. And if it's okay, I'd like to talk for a minute about my first Lovecraft Country lesson to give you a sense of what we're looking at. Sure. So episode three of Lovecraft Country, there's a scene where uh, Letitia Lewis, who is the main character, uh, where you know she, she had just moved into a house in a white neighborhood and the white neighbors burn a cross on her lawn. And in that moment, you don't know what she's going to do. And then you see a look of absolute stony resolve. She grabs a baseball bat and heads out onto the lawn. Uh, And for me, that was an incredible moment, because it really reminded me of a lot of women in the black freedom struggle. Like when I saw her face, I thought about Gloria Richardson and that incredible iconic photo where she's slapping away the uh, National Guard, you know, the National Guard's uh, guns and bayonets. Um, And it reminded me of my family. You know, my mom is from West Virginia, and her family was very involved in the civil rights struggles in West Virginia. And you know, when it came to things like white supremacists, they did not back down. Um, and so I called this lesson, Meet the Real Letitia Lewis, Black Women Who Did Not Back Down, and structured a lesson for students where they can look at different examples of black women organizers who are faced with white supremacist violence who did not back down in the face of that violence, right? Uh, So the three examples I have students looking at are Ida B. Wells, Gloria Richardson, and Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, And I think that one thing that's really important when we teach, you know, revolutionaries, we teach activists, we teach our heroes, we got to let people read their actual words and let students read what they say. So I have some excerpts of things that Ida B. Wells said about, you know, the mob came for me. I knew that that the community would organize and have my back, and we decided to do this and that. You know, because this is them kind of talking about what they went through about their experiences. Again, it's a powerful way to talk about these issues with students, especially at a point when when you consider that textbooks and traditional history curriculum barely talk about white supremacist violence at all. Lynching is like one line in the U.S. history textbook, whereas it was a huge part of the black experience. And, you know, and it was a real, very real threat in the lives of black organizers. So I think it's something that students need to be aware of. Also, it's a rising problem in the United States, right? And so it's kind of unconscionable that textbooks don't talk about it in that context. But I think the other thing that students need to be aware of is the tradition of organizing and defense in the face of this violence. You know, we look at those organizers at Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, Lori Richardson. They were not relying on the state to protect them from white supremacist violence. And in fact, in their stories, you can see that the state is a perpetrator of white supremacist violence, right? They were organizing in their communities, and I think that's a really important lesson for students. So yeah, that was one thing I wanted to talk about was just mention um, that lesson as an example of the kind of work that we're doing. And for that lesson, as an extension, we would then have students research black women who are standing up against white supremacy today. So again, you make that connection to the movement today. There's a huge and lucrative field of of what's called, quote, unquote, anti-racist teaching right now. But again, I think that anti-racist teaching in that field is poorly defined. And maybe I think a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas on what that can mean. I think a lot of people think that anti-racist teaching is teaching in ways that make white students comfortable and change their minds and make them less anti-racist. And I just don't think that's accurate. I think that, you know, what is it that actually changes people's attitudes about racism? Historically, it's black people in motion. It's black organizing that changes public consciousness about racism. So my focus is really in empowering young people of color to lead movements for their own liberation, or empowering young people in general to lead movements for their own liberation. I believe that that is where, you know, building that mass movement that actually has made gains against racism is where the onus should lie. And I think I've spent a lot of time over the years in progressive teacher circles and in, quote, unquote, anti-racist teacher trainings. And I've come away very disappointed with what has been offered a lot of times. It's not really a space that's set up for black teachers. so There's a lot of othering. Like you go in and they'll say, as allies or as people who support the black liberation struggle. And I'm like, I'm not an ally. You know, this is my struggle or. What's really common is that they will hire uh, petty bourgeois academics to lecture us about how to do this in the classroom, but a lot of times it's people who have never taught a public school, who don't have any connections to radical organizing or the mass movement, and you know they're going to tell us about how to do our job, but they've never actually done it and don't have the answers. So that's part of why I really wanted to start a collective that empowers the classroom educator to lead in this field, because again, there are a lot of us who have been organizing, been doing this work in the classroom, who have a lot of really practical experience and tips to share, but who are not getting the backing from these official sources, who are not being brought in by these official institutions to lead these official trainings that so many teachers get shunted into. That was Pate
1: Lindsay of the Ida B. Wells Education Project. The Ujima People's Progress Party has been organizing for about a decade in Baltimore and other Maryland cities. But for Ujima, winning elections takes a backseat to grassroots organizing and political education. As organizer Namdi Lumumba explained on Dr. Jared Ball's influential podcast, I mix what I like.
3: Every state has these different awkward rules, right? About how uh, individuals, how groups can participate in the electoral process. The truth is, is that electoral politics is not for working class people. Sure as hell is not for black, brown, and oppressed people to have any real substance change in our lives. If that was so. The 1965 Voter Rights Act would have transformed, at the very least, our local governance, right—the way local government looks—and in parts of the country, especially in urban cities, uh, where Democrats control local, city, you know, local state power, you would have the ability, you would assume, to to make real changes, right, uh, in the lives of Black people. The problem is, is that we don't understand clearly that elections are not struggles for democracy; it's struggles for control of the state, usually by the ruling class, right? As long as capitalism is dominated over the economic system, as long as there's a capitalist class that is wealthy, beyond people's imagination, as long as the system is in place, the electoral politics is not set up to make a real difference in people's lives. And it's sad because so many people just a few months ago, we witnessed people crying to see some old capitalist agent get put into office, one who we've already known his history as being anti-Black and an imperialist. For so long, Black people have engaged and hoped that these things would transform our lives. And what we don't understand is this this struggle around the split in the ruling class, right? This crisis in capitalism that they're calling a crisis in democracy, where the fascist forces, the far-right forces are building. They don't need to win a damn election to do what they do, right? And we have to be aware and informed that winning elections don't necessarily mean that we that's the end of our struggle for power. So how do we get to the Ujima People's Progress Party? This actually was an idea that got started around the Obama administration, just as he was winning, coming into office. And literally, we saw the Black community go through all kinds of release of grief and pain. We saw people who built their record as Black nationalist leaders, who for decades had decried the electoral process, white supremacy and all of that. And all of a sudden, with the emergence of Barack Obama, give him a chance. His family is beautiful. No substance dis- discussion about his policies, about our influence over him as a voting block. none of that, even within the context of a democratic process, right, let alone the liberation struggle. And so coming out of that, it took some time, but people started to say, wait a minute, Black men in office, even at the highest stages, does not mean things are going to transform, right? And so we said, okay, we need to be able to engage in a new way in this electoral process because what has happened is really spent since the 70s. We saw that the ruling class that had its pick of the Black middle class, which has emerged as a a a misleadership class in our community. And they have had all the space to run for office, to win electoral seats, right? And to literally be the operators for local and international capitalism at the expense of the Black community, especially Black working class people. And the revolutionary forces, which were so strong in the 60s, had been pushed back, had been murdered, had been pushed out of the country, dissipated, were now on the outside looking in. And oftentimes we were left to have to do demonstrations on the outside of the debates, right? Even during the Obama administration, the election period, If you remember, there was a brother who stood up and had a sign that said, what about the African community, right? Mm -hmm. And that wasn't even tolerable. To even have a damn question about what would you do for our community if we voted for you was not allowed in that space. And they eventually shouted him down. Well, it's hard to shout you down when you're on the debate, if you can get into the debate. It's hard to deny that you exist and that your political and economic positions exist even if your chance to win is like a snowball's chance in hell, you can't stop me from being able to say what needs to be said, right? And so we would have to come up with an idea, and this is the formulation of how we started to come to create Ujima People's Progress Party, right? And I I just want to quickly say those values were important because we said that we had to build a party that was anti-imperialist, that was anti-capitalist, anti-racist, and anti-sexist, that supported the struggle of working class people believed in self-determination of oppressed people and believed that there could be liberation, right, for people not based upon exploitation. That's the basis of where we start. And now we can have this discussion about what the Ujima People's Progress Party is, you know, day to day, year to year elections in
4: our that. Why the name Ujima? Why do you have uh, the particular language, if, if, you know, a workers-led party, you know, not just Black, but worker-led party? Why are you in front of a red, Black, and green flag? What is the relationship of all of this to what it is you're trying to do to the extent you haven't already explained that?
3: Yes, so Ojima, for those who are into the Kwanzaa uh, celebration, uh, it's a basic principle, right? Collective work and effort, right? Collective work. And we believe that this collective work represents what working class people do every day right and that the leadership of our community as a black community has to go beyond uh the black middle class especially since it has a clear history not only in this country but internationally it has a clear history of being a corporal class a a neo-colonial class a misleadership class that black workers which make up the vast majority of our population everywhere this state this country this world right is that we have to now build an institution that develops us and puts out not only our issues forward, but our leadership and organization styles forward. So that's the name, Uh, the red, black and green is clear. We're tied to the national liberation movement of African people on this continent and in the continent of Africa itself. African people have to have their own self-determination that we define how it will come out. I can't tell you right now, but I know it's a discussion that we must have and you can't be prepared To be in a process if you don't build organization, if you don't educate yourself, if you're not aware of what these questions are, right? We are part of an international struggle to defeat capitalism and imperialism. We we have to be. You can't build, I think history has shown us, you can't build national independence, right? And think that the forces of capitalism aren't interested in every day thing that you do, your resources, your people, the markets, all of that. So you have to be a part of a much broader liberation discussion about defeating capitalism, international capitalism, right? And I think the most important thing that also came out of this is the concept of a Black worker-led party. So there are really two parts to this. And I said, we've been around really for over 10 years. Some of it has been engaged in electoral politics, but we cannot limit ourselves to electoral politics, and we haven't. The real question is, is how do you build working class power from the bottom up, right? That means engaging people on some of the struggles that they deal with, food, clothing, housing, and being in education, police brutality, and building uh, the answers from a working class point of view that don't go to forces that have historically benefited from these kind of relationships. But in saying that, we're going to also build a party that's going to be an electoral party in the state of Maryland. Anybody can join because it's an electoral party. You have obviously want to unite with these principles, right? But we've made it up front that the Black working class will be the core leadership of this discussion. We will never abandon the interests of Black working class people and other working class people, right? We don't want to be transformed into a, a, a Black version of the Democratic Party, or for, for even better sense, we don't even wanna be turned into a black brown version of the, uh, of, the of the Green Party. We wanna be centered around the working class interest, the class analysis, as it affects African people uh, in this country and around the world. The nature of elections, right? Not Let's not do American exceptionalism. Let's talk about what, in social society of human beings, why do we have elections? Mm-hmm. Elections are struggles for control of the state apparatus by contending forces in the ruling class right? Because capitalism isn't a homogenous force. It has contending interests, finance capitalism, manufacturing capitalism, real estate. All of these different sectors of capitalism want to have control of the state apparatus to control public policy that, in, that makes it better for them to make more profits, right? So when you have a discussion like what you just said, we have to understand that because you control the state apparatus, you in broad daylight now can stick the people up, right? And now codify the law to say, yes, this is how we're going to transfer more wealth to other sectors of the capitalist class. But listen, the struggle that we're seeing now between the far right, there are, there are sectors of capitalism that believe in the national discussion, right, around how capitalism should be internalized, how it should ignore other forces in the international capitalist market. They help fund Donald Trump's campaign. You see other sectors of the capitalist class who put money in the Biden campaign. It's not even secrets. I mean, these are open uh, discussions that you just need to look at to see what sectors of the ruling class supported what political ideas and agendas. So this is what we're talking about. You have to have working class politicians who if they're in office who have to be conscious of this fact. What are our class interests? How do we intervene? How do we stop this? I mean damn, you got to have you got to have working class politicians if they're in office who are willing to like flip tables over If somebody believes in that that story, flip over some tables and get arrested because you're not going to participate in the robbery of working class and poor people anymore. Damn it, that's what you want to do, right? Make it untenable to rule for even in those places,
4: if you have a kind of base that you need to build to get elected. So is the UPP trying to become a national party? Are you endeavoring to expand beyond Maryland? Or are you trying to model what other Black communities and other states can do and do it that way? Yes. What are you trying to do?
3: obviously on the state level and we really resisted quote-unquote expanding because the truth is it's contradictions trying to make this happen there are contradictions that make this happen some of it's state level and some of it is organizational capacity what the masses are ready for but we've always been in contact with other forces that are emerging around the country who are trying to do exactly the same thing right we're engaging them all the time i think there's going to have to be a part where we can't stay fractionalized like this we have to be able to come together and say what is it that we need to do to build a working class electoral party that represents Black people, right? And, and we've even been approached by other forces outside of the African community who want to have this discussion. And we've talked to them, and we, but we cannot give up our independent struggle and our need to have self-organization. It's a part of the process. We have to be willing to have a national party, right? But it comes from the bottom up, which means at the state and local level, we have to build capacity.
4: How does the UPP deal with the question of gender, sexuality, and sexuality-based exploitation and oppression, specifically within Black communities?
3: I think this is a really, really important question, and I think it's going to be one of the most transformational questions for our community. The fact is, is that at the very least, there are more people who are non-men, right, (laughs) who are oppressed, who are African by their system of, of imperialism, colonialism, and capitalism, and if that majority is not a part of leadership and having real control over the movement, then you're not going to have a liberation movement. We can't build a movement of liberation that is on top of gender exploitation. We cannot. And we are open to that question. And I think we are ourselves being evolved by the discussion. It is an internal discussion that we are always talking about. I think we continue to learn about that. I think as men, we actually have to take our own ownership, not of just our individual relationship listen the whole community is impacted not just men but women as well right we all believe in in some of these fallacies of patriarchal systems and all that we we've been indoctrinated with that but specifically men have to also check each other right we have to have a process in place you don't you can't expect people who've been indoctrinated for 18 20 30 50 years of this you know crap to also just all of a sudden flip so we have to have processes in our organization we have to have uh, real leadership that's backed up and supported we have to have uh, processes that teach men and women how to relate differently. Right. But we also have at the core understand that a system of expectation, I don't care if it's black capitalism, white capitalism, you know what I'm saying? any
4: system that is based upon exploitation of human beings by human beings is going to produce this kind of problem. Are you trying to win elections and are you trying to give credibility or do you think this effort gives credibility to the system?
3: Certainly. So, first of all, again, I always preference this. We cannot use American exceptionalism to describe political phenomena, right? When Hugo Chavez came to power through the electoral process, was he giving credibility to the system of capitalism in, in Venezuela, right? It's a struggle that he was engaged in, a st- struggle that he didn't live to see, but one that continues even in today, right? So, our big question for us isn't whether we win or lose elections, do we win power, right? The electoral process has been defined totally by the bourgeoisie. So their definition of winning an election is you have to have more votes and therefore you get in office to do nothing. Here we are in in Maryland, a state that is run by the Democratic Party. Here we are in Baltimore City with no Republicans on the city council. What would it be possible if one radical politician wins the election? What policy are we going to get through? What struggle are we going to be able to win as a part of that body right? That's realistic. So we have to understand that the struggle isn't to win an election per se, it is to win power. If you can run an election and build 100, 200, 300 new people into organizational capacity around food, clothing, and housing, and you lost the election, then you just win power. What we have today is a model that even people who are tied to to, to organizational capacity, right? We run elections, and we say what we have to say, and then after the election, we, you know, everything disperses and there's no consolidation of that base. We have to fix that. We have to train ourselves. We have to build organizational capacity that teaches people. No, 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 no. Every name that you get, call those people back and get them organized. Damn win an election. Matter of fact, two or four years later, you got a base. So when you run somebody else, you can go back and say, we have power to put people in office. Right. We have to have a long term view, not this short term view. We're in a struggle for power, not just to win elections.
4: So to that end, what is the uh, sort of day to day of the UPP? Uh, you know, how do people get in touch? What is it like once you become a member? Are there, you know, meetings or monthly, weekly? What, what projects, programs? What is the day to day building of that organization looking like?
3: Yeah, certainly. So, you know, we first of all, we're involved with community-type activity. Uh, mutual aid has obviously been very uh, much needed, especially with the COVID-19 uh, crisis going on. Being able to help uh, communities get uh, necessary food, PPE materials, toiletries that they need in their community has been a big part of what we're doing. The comrades who've come out of that work are now looking at having a community refrigerator. Uh, That's available in the community. Take what you need. Give what you can. That's free to the community. We're working on uh, Gloria Richardson Community Gardening Project. Sister Gloria Richardson, who was a a native of Maryland, uh, who's still alive, who, you know, really set a strong example. We're looking at how do we build a network, family oriented, you know, food plot? How do we teach ourselves to feed ourselves? I don't expect a garden in your backyard to feed your whole family, but it also helps when times get a little tighter. Maybe you wanna trade what you grow your tomatoes for somebody's watermelons. We can also do things with ourselves that don't need the capitalist system for us to maintain ourselves. We also have a political education process, which is really, really key. Civics education, which is like mass based for the communities, something that we had planned in 2020 to actually go on the road, if you will, go to community associations, go to schools and have a presentation that would give people a quick working class intro to civics, right? Because civics is gone in most public education. And even when you got that, it was a bourgeoisie's version of what civics was supposed to be. Uh, we have political education for people who join the party who want to have deeper discussions about economic systems and systems of exploitation. What does liberation look like? You know what I mean? All these kind of questions that need to be asked. You need to develop a cadre, right, that can, can not only answer these questions
1: but implement these answers. That was Namdi Lumumba of the Ujima People's Progress Party speaking from Baltimore. Kovi Biakalo is a writer and scholar born in Nigeria. Who specializes in culture and identity. Her recent article is titled, We Can't Talk About Immigration Without Acknowledging Black Immigrants. Biakalo says the period of the Harlem Renaissance was a turning point in Black American politics and culture, partly because of the influence of Black immigrants. When I think of Harlem
5: in particular, Harlem does represent, the Harlem Renaissance certainly represents this point of migration in which people from the American South, black people from the American South, as well as black northerners who have been there, and then people who have migrated, uh, black people from the Caribbean, and the rest of the Americas, they sort of meet in Harlem, and it becomes this mecca, if you will, of this exchange of culture, Dr. Michael Gomez, who is New York University's civil professor of history, he would say that, you know, out of this moment comes this cultural efflorescence where, you know, black people were sort of working out our response to each other based on our conditioning to empire, whether that's the United States that is becoming an empire or the British empire, which had already obviously been around for centuries. So Harlem does represent a Mecca, I think, to Black people. And it definitely represents it from the Harlem Renaissance because of these migrations and these movements. And I think out of that comes a very important Black history period, not just in the United States, but globally, it's, it's a global black period really, and it influences black people in the United States as well as in Paris, as well as in West Africa. And so the Harlem Renaissance is to me a very vital period in 20th century African diaspora history.
2: And of course, many of the most important activists political activists in Harlem, or based in Harlem, were from the diaspora, as well as many of the cultural workers, which gave the Harlem Renaissance a different kind of quality and germinated a different kind of politics.
5: Absolutely. I think because Harlem is this site of Black cultural production, and not just to cultural production in the arts or in culture, poetry, music. It also represents all these art productions and these cultural productions also represent a resistance to the white supremacist umbrella and conditioning of black people within America, but also those coming from different spaces within the empires that they are coming from. So I think when we look at Harlem as a site of black diaspora resistance, it is really not surprising that we have Malcolm X's, the Langston Jews come from there who are doing, you know, obviously two very different types of things. You know, one is a poet and a writer, and the other one is a revolutionary. But in some ways they kind of are both representative of what Harlem means to black diaspora, and it includes, obviously, and we sometimes forget the women of Harlem, so I definitely want to make a play for talking about, you know, Dora Neale Hurston, you know, I want to make a place for not forgetting that these women were also very important to the Harlem Renaissance.
2: And, of course, Marcus Garvey and Hubert Harrison and innumerable other Black political thinkers who resided in Harlem.
5: Absolutely. Um, I think Marcus Garvey is sort of almost the perfect representation of the Black immigrant impact on Black resistance in the United States during the 20th century because of his Gaviite movement and this understanding of American society and certainly Western society because of course he is from Jamaica he understood it as a place in which there was, the conditioning is such that home can never be complete in this space if you are Gaviite you sort of believe that that home is always somewhere else and of course I think that we're sort of in conflict with that. If you live in the United States, I think part of being black in the United States as an immigrant, but certainly as an, um, uh, an American with, who is multi-generational, descendants of the enslaved, I think that the idea of America's home is very important, certainly to the black American person, but it is also an idea that exists tentatively. Because citizenship is something that has not really been fully granted to black Americans, based on treatment, based on legacy, and because it hasn't been granted to black Americans, it cannot therefore be extended to those of us who are black immigrants. Um, and even myself, you know I use that, use that term rather loosely because I'm not a citizen of the United States, I'm a resident. but I think when we look at the identities, we have to be very honest about how whether you're a Black American who is a descendant of enslaved people, or you're a Black immigrant with very recent migration to the United States, whether it's you or it's your parents or even your grandparents, I think we have to be very clear that our presence in this country, for different reasons, is tenuous and it's tentative.
2: Yes, not even being recognized popularly as part of the immigration. And the immigrant story is told as it is told. It goes straight from Ellis Island down to the Jewish Lower East Side or Italian neighborhoods in Brooklyn or the story of an older migration of Irish, but doesn't even deal with the diaspora.
5: Absolutely. You know, I think my sort of understanding and what I have come, you know, I've come to realize is it's very difficult to talk about black immigrants in American society because black immigrant stories are inherently tied to black American legacy in the United States. And because black American legacy is tied to the stain of slavery in this country. Because black Americans are not immigrants, immigration is a very complicated matter. And I'm not of the business of saying that there is choice to all forms of migration because there isn't, especially when empire is involved. I think choice is often the wrong word people use to describe why migrants are in this country, why immigrants are in this country. But I think that America loves to position itself as a nation of immigrants. And it does that very carefully with stories of the Mayflower and Irish migration and Jewish migration, and certainly brown people in the last 30, 50 years coming from Latin America. But it cannot do the same thing exactly with black immigrants because... The very first people who were black who came to this country were brought in chains to essentially be weapons of American economic profit. And when that is the inheritance of all black migrants' migration, all black immigrants' migration, when that is the story of inheritance, I think it becomes very difficult to now then talk about post-1965, the act.
2: The Immigration and Nationality The
5: Immigration, yes. So post-1965, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which was a consequence of the civil rights movement, by the way. So I think it becomes very difficult to talk about black immigrants because you then have to talk about the fact that we are inheriting the legacy of slavery. And we all know that America, white America certainly, does not really like to engage in conversations that ultimately put slavery at the forefront. And I think that that's a very important thing for black immigrants to understand that we also so often miss in our conversation about what black immigration means. Because when you come here post-1965, or if you come here from, the Harlem Renaissance, you are tied to that legacy of slavery. And yet we cannot consider that migration, can we? And we ought not to because it's a different form of movement than people seeking a so-called better life in this part of the world. And obviously it's to the detriment of the natives who were in this part of the world. And I think that that's an aspect of the story that's often overlooked as well. So, again, black immigration becomes a very complicated conversation to have because we have to tie our experiences to the legacy of slavery. And we all know that we cannot, in the American context, consider black Americans who are multi-generational descendants of enslaved people migrants. It's sort of like what America loves to talk about. This is a nation of immigrants, the nation of immigrants. Sure enough to some extent, but we are overlooking that we also have Native Americans who are not immigrants, and we have Black Americans, descendants of the enslaved, who are not immigrants, and that is the inheritance of, the latter is the inheritance of Black immigrants.
2: And these Black folks who come to the United States are integrated into a different America than the non-Blacks. They become Black Americans.
5: I think so, and I think we're sort of in a period where we're, we're working out what that really means. I think as certainly the face of Black immigrants has sort of made its way into popular culture, I would say, specifically, we're sort of working out what does that mean for Black America as a whole, because we, we know from history that There have been many black migrants who have been public figures in the country. We think about, for example, Kamala Harris now. Her blackness, she is biracial, but her blackness is situated in a different country in terms of its origins, even though, of course, she was born here. And we think of someone like Colin Powell, who, again, these are American citizens who are born here, but their blackness does derive from enslaved people in the Caribbean so when we talk about inheriting I want to be very careful that we don't necessarily inherit the sort of genetics the entirety of the story of the black American enslaved experience we're not inheriting that as black immigrants what we are inheriting however is the legacy of it and the racism of it and the conditions of it, once we are now black in America, you kind of are now under that particular microscope, to some extent. And so I think it's a very complex conversation. So I want to be sure to make it clear, that I'm not saying that we are inheriting the stories and the genetics and the pain but we are inheriting the legacy of that. And I think that there is a difference between those two statements.
2: And of course, there is some friction between these groups. I hear uh, constantly from Black folks from elsewhere in their countries and here the criticism that Black Americans have a chip on their shoulder uh, politically. You
5: know, I think that i have heard those conversations as well and i think there is something to be said about in the first place black americans to the rest of the diaspora and i think sometimes this gets lost in translation in conversation to the rest of the diaspora especially the rest of the diaspora that comes from black majority countries black americans are seen as american and because they are seen as american They're seen as part of empire. And when you have that citizenship to empire, however tentative it might be, your culture, your causes, um, your identity is simply made more hyper-visible. And that is through no fault of black Americans. It is just the consequence of having citizenship in empire. However, I don't think the word chip on the shoulder is necessarily how I would describe it. I would simply describe it as it's very tough to have these conversations because within the American context, the United States context, Black Americans are an oppressed people. They have a legacy of oppression that that spans centuries, as do other groups of people. And I think from the perspective of other groups of people, because of that relationship to empire, it's sort of viewed as Well, black Americans seemed to be, their suffering seems to take up a lot of space in the black diaspora. But that has everything to do with American citizenship and not necessarily to do with the specific black American identity. I view it again, not as a chip on a shoulder, but a reality of citizenship privilege. And I think that that is something to be cognizant of. But I also, you know, I hear that, especially as somebody who is Nigerian. I hear Nigerians, we have a our children all the time. And I think, again, it has very much to do with the fact that Nigerians are also in this interesting space of, because they're a country in Africa, we all understand Africa is this sort of space that has been colonized and demonized by the West for centuries, and we are still in arguably a very neo-colonial period that we haven't recovered from. And I think that when people sort of view Africans from that perspective, they sort of forget that Africans are in their own identities and trying to also recover from their own suffering, from their own oppression. And for Nigerians specifically, because of our population numbers, our sufferings in the African context, tend to also take up a space of hyper-visibility. And so as a Nigerian, I can almost like appreciate where black Americans are coming from. And I think, again, we almost have to have, I don't even think privilege is truly the word that really covers the experience. I think we need to develop new language for talking amongst ourselves about what it really means to have this level of visibility, this level of everybody in the black diaspora understanding certain groups' sufferings over others based on population or based on tenuous citizenship to empire, as opposed to kind of viewing each other through these power dynamics that are really a function of Western structures, because everywhere in the world, really, Black people are still under white supremacist structures. We haven't escaped them. And I think what ends up happening is we actually end up viewing each other through these very anti-black lenses. And we haven't really developed the language for how we interact in our spaces under that conditioning and with our own set of power dynamics between ourselves.
2: You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.